is where we stopped last time. We talked about, uh, we've gone through the three levels of the immune response, okay? The barrier, okay, skin, mucous membranes, okay? The innate response, which was cellular, it was chemical, it was inflammation and fever, those were the four parts of that. And then we went through the adaptive response, which was B cells, you know, uh, antibody mediated, cell mediated, which were the T cells, T helper cells and T, T uh, cytotoxic or TC cells. Um, and we went through how those interact with each other. Uh, and basically that's how the immune system functions. And that then brought us to immunization. Okay, and the purpose of immunizations then is really to challenge your immune system with the antigen of uh, an active disease, but it has been changed so that either it's a killed antigen or it has been altered such that it's not, it's not infective. Or if it is infective, still a little bit, it's very minor. And so that your body can respond to it and then you'll have memory cells. So if, then if you're exposed to the actual disease at a later time, you'll have a very rapid response within a, a couple of days and usually you won't have a major reaction to it. Uh, and we talked about, we can do this, there are four combinations here that we deal with. Um, there would be active, natural immunization. Okay, so active means that your immune system actively goes through the whole immune process and develops the memory cells, you know, goes through, goes through the whole thing. Okay, it goes through the whole adaptive thing, you make antibodies, you get, you, you activate your T cells, go through that whole process. But the key is that you end up with T memory cells and B memory cells at the end, so that you are then prepared for, for that disorder. Okay, um, and, and that happens when you get sick, when you're actually exposed. Okay, every, you know, every time you get a cold or any, you know, any disease you've ever had in your life, that's natural encounter that develops an immunity because usually afterwards you're now immune to that. You don't get it a second time. Okay, all right. So that's the active part. The other thing that we do is we have a passive type of immunity, which is where we actually provide the already prepared immune products, usually antibodies, most often. Uh, they've been made somewhere else, and then we give them to the individual. And the natural one of that is basically transfer from mother to fetus, and that happens all the time. Uh, it, it goes, they cross through the placenta and protect the uh, developing fetus. And then if for mothers who nurse, which is pretty much the norm these days, uh, more people nurse than don't right now. That was not true uh, 50 years ago. 50 years ago, uh, most babies were bottle fed. Uh, it was just the way things were then, okay? No reason, just, just the way it was. Uh, and so that changed it. But during, especially during that first year, uh, nursing provides many antibodies to the to the infant that the mother's system has produced. Okay, so that's a direct transfer then. Okay, that's an uh, that would be a passive immunization. Okay, but it's natural. It's what naturally occurs. Okay, and then we have a passive one, which is we would call say an artificial sort of response, where the purified antibodies are injected into you. They've been made in another animal. Um, and they're injected into you at the time when you need to have them, okay? And 
and of course they, they have a minimal lifespan, so antibodies don't have long lifespans anyway, uh, but uh, these would have even shorter because normally since they were made in another individual, your system may respond to them as antigens as well. But in the meantime, that initial injection will have an opportunity to go do what it needs to do, and then your body will probably rid you of those antibodies uh, after that. Um, and so all of those are types of, of immunization, okay? Um, the first two result in the formation of memory cells. These two do not. These do not confirm lifelong immunity to anything or even weeks long or months long or whatever. Uh, these are just immediate. They're either used or they're not used and then they're done with. Okay? But you don't develop so, for instance, if I gave you antibodies from somebody who had the flu or we prepared antibodies to the flu, uh, you know, and then when you got the flu, they were injected into you, um, that would help you, but it, the, those antibodies by themselves would not develop any memory cells of yours. So, uh, if you really want to develop memory cells, you have to do one of the, the, the first two up there. All right, so that's immunizations. Uh, which in some ways are natural and in some ways are uh, perhaps artificial uh, to some extent. All right, now, we're also going to talk about some issues where the immune system doesn't help you. It creates problems. Um, you've got uh, in your adaptive immune system, you have a, a well, even in part of the DNA, uh, you have some pretty strong responses each of which is capable on occasion of doing damage to you rather than helping you, okay? And so we refer to these as hypersensitivities. In other words, hyper. Hyper means above and beyond, more, and that you're sensitive to something that perhaps you, you uh, don't need, shouldn't be or don't need to be, um, but you are anyway. And the first one, a, a type one, is, is called acute hypersensitivity. Um, uh, this is what happens when you have an allergy, okay? Um, we call them allergens as opposed to antigens because they're not really pathogens. There's absolutely nothing in tree pollen that's harmful to you. It, you know, you can breathe all the tree pollen and it's, you know, it's not, it itself is not going to do anything to you. But some people have an immune system that has receptors, has developed receptors, that match epitopes on the pollen. And therefore you get an immune response to it. And so allergies are basically immune responses to something that's not dangerous at all. It's your immune system kind of messing with you. Okay? And you're, you're stuck with that. Okay? And you know, that's why some people are allergic and some people are not, because it just depends on what receptors were developed. Um, now, what occurs doing these, and just the standard, if those some of you who have allergies to tree pollen, uh, my wife does, she's been, and my daughter, uh, stepdaughter, every morning they wake up and uh, refer to themselves as snot buckets, you know, because, I mean, it, you know, it's just, the sinuses are packed and, and once you get up and start moving around, it starts to drain, and, and then you're usually a little better later in the day. All right, it's allergies, uh, particularly to tree pollens. Uh, maples, for my, for my wife, it's maple trees. 
uh, and oak trees. Oak trees are, have, are just starting to flower soon, and she'll be even worse off when they, do, when they do that. All right, so what's happening then is you inhale these, you get into the mucous membranes, and remember we talked about mast cells in the mucous membranes. Okay, mast cells are when basophils migrate out of the blood and into the connective tissue, and they are packed full of little granules or little uh, vesicles filled with histamines and prostaglandins. When they are, uh, when those mast cells end up with a, uh, a receptor on them that matches, well, say, uh, well, let, let's just use uh, dust mites as an example, because that's a, another common allergy. Actually, it's the dust mite feces is what people are generally uh, allergic to. Again, there's nothing in them that's going to actually harm you. But these mast cells release the histamines. And what did histamine do in an inflammatory process? What was the first thing that was going to happen? Okay. We just went over this last time. Inflammatory. Pardon? It's going to attract white blood cells. What else is it going to do? Well, this is going to cause inflammation, which means that the capillaries are going to dilate. You're going to get increased blood flow. You're going to get the capillaries are going to become more permeable, which means fluid can leak out of them more easily. So you're going to get fluid leaked out. You're going to get uh, white blood cells to be attracted to the area. Um, you, you get edema or, or swelling um, and extra fluid, and you end up then with lots of extra mucus in your nose and you get the runny nose and the watery eyes and it's just an inflammatory response to that allergen. There's no reason why you should be having one you just do and you just have to deal with the fact that your immune system responds to dust mites or to maple pollen or uh, mold spores or, or whatever it is that you have to deal with and everybody's different. So that's why if you have a real problem, you go see the, you can go to a, 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 a internal medicine or a, a, an allergy uh, clinic, and they can uh, determine what things you are most allergic to. Has anybody ever had anyone here had that done? Okay, so you know what it's like. It's not a real, well, it's not a horrible process, but it's not a lot of fun either. Uh, what they do is they uh, either on your arm or on your back, depending on how they're going to do it. Uh, they It'll take, and they'll actually put little marks on your skin, and then they'll inject a tiny amount of purified allergen under the skin at each one of those marks, and they'll have marked them, numbered them, or something so they know wh wh where each one is. And then if you are allergic to it, you will get a small inflammatory response there. And it lives like crazy. Okay. Um, they look at the size of that response, um, how, uh, how big the little raised area is and how red it is and they grade them then as to which things you are most allergic to and sometimes then you can go through a therapy process to reduce your response to certain allergens. You, know, you can't do everything in the world but you can do the, the worst ones. Yeah. So my, my 10 year old son's going right now. They, just, they did his thigh. They did his back the first time and then they just did his left thigh. They did 82. Yeah. Him 82 times. He yeah. used to sleep for the leg. And adults, you're never asleep for. They put him, he goes twice a week uh, 
Now, yeah, and once you uh, once they decide what you are most allergic to, what they will do is they'll start you off on a series of shots, and uh, they depending on what what it is, it might be weekly, and uh, or it might be every other week. It just it depends on the particular issue, and you they start you off with very low, tiny doses of that allergen so low that your system really doesn't do much of a response to it, or shouldn't. And then over time, they gradually, in, you know, when you finish one vial of that stuff, then they'll go to the next vial, which will be just a little bit stronger. And then they'll go through the next one, and you'll go through a series of these until you have built a tolerance in your, in your system. Now, when my wife did hers, it really helped her. She used to have earaches all the time, and they, she doesn't have that anymore. Uh, so it does work. Uh, but it, it's, you're right, it's long. It's years. And I know she got really tired of going every other week and getting, she had two shots every other week. You know, it's just, I'm tired of being stuck, you know, that often. But it did, it did work. Okay, so allergies. That's, that's all an allergy is. It's a type 1 hypersensitivity. Your immune system is overly sensitive to something that there's absolutely no reason why it should be. It just is. That's just one of the one of the things about being alive. You may be allergic to stuff. Okay. Now, uh, most common ones are the dust mites are very common. Uh, pollen, which is not on here, but uh, you know, ragweed is another big one. What you'll find is if you're allergic to pollens, it's always going to be a pollen from a plant that is wind pollinated because they're going to produce lots and lots of pollen, as you've been already starting to see around here. Um, and they spread it out into the air, and you're breathing mass quantities of that pollen. Now, if it's a flower that is insect pollinated, chances are you are not going to be allergic to it, because they're not spreading pollen all over the place. It's only on the bugs, and hopefully the bugs aren't allergic, and they don't have to worry about that. Okay, but uh, So you rarely are allergic to, to uh, plants that are insect pollinated or bat pollinated or beetle pollinated or whatever. Okay. Um, and food allergies are the same thing. Food allergies, uh, there's absolutely nothing in peanuts that's going to harm anybody. Some people have a massive immune response to compounds in peanuts. Or in shellfish, that's another one that is common, as a common food allergy. Uh, a crab. Uh, my wife is allergic to uh, flounder, of all things. I don't know why, but you could be allergic to uh, antibiotics. Okay, if you've ever gotten given an antibiotic, they're always going to ask you, are you allergic to any, you know, or you go to the doctor, they're going to ask you, are you allergic to any drugs? Well, you don't know until you've had it the first time. I mean, how would you know? Okay. Uh, and so uh, that is a... Uh, Issue. Now, so this is basically what's happening here. Here's your, uh, there's a B cell, the allergen is here, it makes uh, antibodies, the antibodies go to the mast cells. And so your first contact with these things is usually pretty minor, but then later on, when the allergen shows up again, it attaches to these mast cells, they release the histamines, and you get your inflammatory response. Uh, okay. Uh, the Taliban, I understand. Yeah. Uh, at any 
rate. Uh, so this is what's generally going on if you have allergies. Okay. Now, life-threatening response. Okay, so if you've got an allergic response in your in the uh, mucous membranes of your nasal passages, it's it's annoying as heck, but it's not fatal. Okay, um, and it will last until that allergen is no longer around in, in the air. So it's usually they're very seasonal, okay. except for dust mites, because dust mites are always around. Okay. All right. Now, imagine taking that inflammatory response and making it a system-wide response so that capillaries everywhere in your body start to dilate. Okay. Now, this causes a, a rapid drop in blood pressure. Anytime we talk about shock, the major event is a drastic drop in blood pressure. And when the blood pressure drops, blood does not get back to the heart as fast as it needs to, and then the heart obviously can't pump it out because it's not getting back, and that's why shock is a life-threatening uh, uh, problem. Okay, now, in this case, anaphylactic shock, uh, the, the histamine is released by a lot of mast cells, you, uh, blood pressure drops because fluid is leaking out of the capillaries, plus you just made your circulatory system bigger, bigger volume. If I take you know, the same amount of blood and I put it in a bigger volume, the pressure goes down. Okay? It's like taking a certain amount of air out of a balloon and putting it in a bigger balloon, it will, there will be less pressure on that balloon. Okay? No, it's really no different with your blood pressure. Uh, and then the other thing is you get, because of the edema, you tend to get swelling, and these can constrict the airways, okay? And actually, when people die of this, it's a combination of shock and suffocation. They just can't breathe. Now, uh, this can kill you in minutes, okay? Th this kind of a reaction is rapid. It happens uh, within minutes, and if you can't be treated, uh, you will be dead in minutes. That's just the way it works. Now, people who know they're allergic to get this response to something will carry epinephrine with them, an EpiPen. And, and epinephrine is a hormone that you produce that counteracts this uh, response. It causes, it increases your heart rate, it causes your capillaries to constrict back down so your blood pressure goes up and, you know, uh, and your blood keeps moving, uh, the swelling goes down and it, it's pretty instantaneous. So uh, I have a, one of my colleagues down in Hampton, uh, she's allergic to bee stings. Okay. How does she know she's allergic to bee stings? Well, she had an anaphylactic response once. <clears throat> she was fortunate to survive that. Now she knows. Because in no way not until it happens the first time. Okay, so she carries a little EpiPen. If it ever gets stung, she takes that thing out. She just goes whack into her thigh. It automatically injects the epinephrine. So people who know that they are susceptible to these, people who have peanut allergies or certain food allergies, will often carry these uh, because they might, by just by accident, get some of that. So again, this type of shock anaphylactic shock, is your immune system is doing this. Why is it doing it? Because your immune system has chosen to respond to something that is absolutely harmless. 
It's just well, we that's our immune system. We got to live with it. The hard part with all of this is you don't know you're allergic to anything until you get a response, whether it's a minor response or the more uh, catastrophic response. You still don't know until you've had a response. Do you think human allergies have gotten worse over the years? Well, they seem to. Now, uh, there are a couple of theories about that. Uh, one is that we're much more aware of them than we used to be. That's, you know, a lot, lot more people would seek medical attention. There's another theory, uh, which is, is kind of intriguing, but not demonstrated yet, that the cleaner your environment is, the more likely you are to have allergies because your immune system is, it's, it's not doing anything and it responds more strongly when you do have something. Uh, and so uh, this whole thing about trying to keep everything sterile and clean and all that, there are many people who feel that that's actually, uh, uh, is causing an increase in, aller in allergic responses. Uh, you know, so, you know, people are saying with, you know, oh, kids, uh, send them out and let them play in the dirt, let them play in the mud, let them eat a little dirt, it ain't gonna hurt them any. You know, I mean, that's what kids do. We have years ago when I was growing, nobody worried about that stuff. Yes, yeah, drop like, drop like, you know. and. Might be outside most of the day. You know, I mean that's today. You walk, go through a residential. This is this is a great time. This is spring break week, right, for the local schools. Go through a residential area and just see how many kids you see outside playing. Not a lot. Maybe you'll see some. A lot of them are inside playing with their phone, or you know, more often their phone or a, a, an iPad, a pad of some kind. Um, they're not outside. They're not exposed to things. The immune system, not that it gets bored, but, you know, that's kind of the idea that if, if it's got nothing to do, when you do have something to do, you get a, a more of a response. Uh, that's not really been verified, but there's a lot of people who feel that that's part of what's going on. And that parasites are a part of that as well. The fact that we don't have parasites anymore is actually perhaps counterproductive in some respects. Uh, so... So that's, yeah, but they are, do seem to be more common, as particularly food allergies seem to be more common. It may also be that processed food is more likely to produce the things that people respond to. Uh, but, you know, somebody who's allergic to peanuts, it doesn't matter whether it's just a plain roasted peanut or peanut butter or, you know, it not make any difference. They still get the response. So, and just for those who don't know, um, Fire ant venom is usually reacted to the same as bee sting, bee venom. Uh, so people who are allergic to bee stings or wasp stings are also allergic to fire ants, who are here now. Not huge numbers of them on the peninsula yet, but, but they're here. They're nasty little guys. And again, it's not like they're evil and out to get you, you know. Uh, they just do what they do. You know, they have to deal with that. Uh, nothing in nature is, is evil. It's just, just does what it does. Humans have always had to work with it. Okay, now, we also have, uh, I'll go back to this slide here. We can also have a type two response. This is uh, dependent on antibodies. And an example of this would be a blood transfusion of the wrong blood type. 
remember you've all when you went through genetics in 101 you should have talked about the a and b and the o and what the uh, antigen on the surface of the red blood cells and the antibodies that you have so if you have type a blood you have little a antigens but you don't uh, you don't make any antibodies against a because that would affect your own blood but you do make antibodies for type b uh, if you're type o which is the most common blood type you have antibodies to both types of blood and so, uh, so this is one of the uh, possible uh, responses. So this is an actual antibody response. Um, and uh, it, uh, okay, and so here's just another example. This is what causes uh, uh, RH incompatibilities. Uh, if uh, RH, if you're RH uh, positive, uh, you would never make anti-RH antibodies because that would affect your own cells. But if you're RH negative, meaning you don't have the little RH marker, then you have the capability of making antibodies for that. Okay? And this is uh, not a major problem anymore in, for people who give birth in hospitals because we know how to deal with it. But uh, years ago, uh, it was a serious problem. And what would happen is mom is Rh negative, okay? That's the first thing you have to be. Mom has to be Rh negative. First pregnancy, the blood of the fetus and the mom never mix during the pregnancy. They're kept separated, okay? Usually not a big problem in this first pregnancy. The child is probably Rh positive because about 80% of the population is Rh positive. So if mom's negative, the chances are pretty good that the child's going to end up, that the dad is positive and the child's going to end up being positive because that's the dominant trait. Okay, so, uh, but at childbirth, okay, so the, the little guy makes his or her way out down through the birth canal. Uh, and then the placenta has to be delivered. That's the part they never show you on the TV. Uh, but the placenta is still attached by the umbilical cord and you gotta get that out. Because if it doesn't get out, you will have, you'll have life-threatening infection inside the uterus. So it has to come out. Normally it detaches on its own, but in the process, blood from the mother and the fetus are going to end up mixing because you're pulling that out of the wall of the uterus and there's inevitably going to be some hemorrhaging. And then the, the placenta comes on down. It's delivered as well. They cut the cord, you know, the whole bit. Okay. Um, now, what this does, though, sensitizes mom to the Rh positive. And her system will now make Rh positive antibodies. The second pregnancy is then becomes the problem because if that child is also Rh positive, those antibodies will cross the placenta. They will attach to red blood cells. They'll cause them to clump, just like a normal blood typing reaction. And uh, th this, could, this is life-threatening for the fetus. Now, uh, th th back before they had any way to treat this, they referred to the children as blue babies because when they were born, their skin was almost blue, the lack of oxygen, because they had so little, you know, red, so few red blood cells still functioning. Um, they even had tried in utero blood transfusions for the fetus. That's just... That's just dangerous to start with, okay, uh, to even try. But uh, a lot of babies die. They, didn't, they, were, they just didn't survive. 
Now what they do is you get a couple shots which remove any of the RH antigen before your system gets a chance to even be exposed to it. And therefore, it's not a big problem today, or it shouldn't be. Okay. But so this is a problem then where you are having your immune system. And it's, again, it's, your immune system is doing what it's supposed to do. Antibodies are attaching to stuff that they're meant to attach to. Okay. We cause, well, in the case of blood transfusions, we cause the problem. So that would be the type two. Type three, uh, this is a, what's called an immune complex. All right, now, so what happens to the antigen after the antibodies attached to it? We didn't talk about that. We just said, yeah, they glom onto the antigen and inactivate it, but then what happens to it? Well, normally what happens is this attracts white blood cells which engulf that antigen antibody complex, break it down and get rid of it, okay? Now, when you have a condition where this is not happening the way it should, and you have antigen antibody complexes that are not being removed fast enough, then you can get a, a, a problem caused by that. Uh, Okay, glomerular nephritis. You probably don't really know what that is. You haven't talked about the excretory system, but it has to do with kidneys. Uh, inside the kidneys, you have a little area where the blood goes in, and some of the blood is filtered into the kidney tubules. It's called a glomerulus. Okay, nephritis simply means it's an inflammation of that tissue. Uh, and what's happening is these antibody antigen complexes are getting into that area. They're causing an inflammatory response and then the kidneys are not functioning properly, okay? And that's always life-threatening, okay? Kidney infections are never good, okay? Um, that's why when you go, almost any time you go to the doctor for a physical or if you have any pain down here, first thing they're gonna do, one, a urine sample. And what they're gonna look for is proteins in the urine, because there shouldn't be any. That's an indication of, an, of some kind of an infection in the urinary system. Uh, and so that's, that's a problem. Uh, lupus erythematosus uh, is uh, a, a, an immune disorder. Um, it is more common in women than in men for reasons that are not understood at all, okay? But seems to be, and what you get is the immune system reacting to a healthy body tissue, you get these immune complexes which then cause infl inflammation in the area. And it moves around. Uh, when you have an episode of this, one time it might be in a muscle, the next time it might be in a joint, the next time it might be in a kidney. You don't know where it's gonna be. This makes it really hard to diagnose, okay? Because every time, at the beginning, every time the patient comes in, it's a different complaint. Not something, you know, just, a, just difficult to deal with. It is thought that for some reason your antibodies, uh, you, you are producing antibodies that react to nucleic acid, to DNA that is free because of damaged cells, and that that's what's causing this. Not really entirely sure if that's the whole cause. Now, the only real treatment for something like that is to stop the immune system from doing what it's doing. 
And so you take an anti-inflammatory. Anytime you take an anti-inflammatory, even an antihistamine, what you are doing is counteracting your immune system function. You're telling it, I don't care that you want to do an inflammatory response. I don't want it. Stop. Okay, well, in the case of, you know, nasal thing, that's not a major issue. But in other times, that's a problem because you, uh, what you're doing is decreasing the sensitivity of the immune system. The typical drug given for uh, uh, lupus is uh, uh, prednisone. I don't know if anybody here has ever had prednisone. You do not want to have prednisone. It's a very strong steroid. It suppresses immune responses. It relieves the symptoms of the lupus, which is great. I mean, it does do that. But it reduces your, uh, your immune system ability to respond. And so that makes you more susceptible. It's also a type of drug that they have to start you off with a small dose, build up to a big one, and then they have to gradually tail it off. You can't just stop taking it. It's really strong, uh, strong drug. Uh, but it works. Okay, it, it works, it's very effective. Okay. So that's a type three type, okay? So in type one, what we have is essentially a, 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 an inflammatory response. Uh, to some outside substance. Okay? In type 2, what we have is antibodies actually damaging body tissues. In particular, blood is the one we talked about, but actually damaging body tissues. Antibodies are causing the problem. In type 3, what we have, it, antibodies are involved, but this is a, uh, it's a, actually the immune complexes, the antibody antigen complexes which are causing an inflammatory response because they're not being removed properly by, by the body. Okay, so all of those have to do with antibodies or infl inflammation, all the three types, first three types. Type four is a completely different response. This is called a delayed hypersensitivity because it usually takes about you know, at least 24 hours, sometimes longer, after exposure before you get a response. Uh, this is entirely a T-cell response, cytotoxic T-cell response. Okay, so the one that's most common, well, there are two of them that are really common, graft rejections, okay, so transplant rejections, okay? You transplant tissue from another individual into anybody, their body identifies that as foreign tissue. And it starts making Cytotoxic T cells to go and kill those cells because they're not they're not part of me. They're not supposed to be here. Your immune system just does what it does. Okay, uh, so people who've had a transplant of any kind will have to be on immune suppression drugs the rest of their lives, which then of course leaves them vulnerable to other infections. It's, it's one of those you know can't win situations. Now. The most common one around here would be poison ivy or poison oak or whatever. You know, there's a sumac also that does it. Uh, basically, they there's absolutely nothing wrong with poison ivy. It just produces a chemical on its surface that when it gets on your skin, and usually the first couple times, you don't get much of a response. But once you sensitize your system, you will then produce T cells. Remember we said, well, all right, so producing T cells takes a little bit of time. 
uh, and the cytotoxic T cells will begin to attack cells in the area where that occurred. And you will get the blistering reaction. Uh, if you've ever had poison ivy, uh, yeah, you know what it's like. And it never gets better. In fact, you're just generally become more susceptible over time. Um, pardon? Okay. Not not since. You're lucky. That is not the norm for people. Uh, there are people who have an almost no reaction to it. Yeah. Um, however, I would say be careful about handling it, even though you know you're not going to get a reaction, because if you handle it off enough, you may start to get one. Uh, so you have to be, you want to be still cautious around it. I mean, the poison ivy is everywhere here. It's absolutely everywhere. I mean, you can't go in places around here without finding poison ivy. It's a very attractive little plant, actually. Um, but it does create a problem. And that's why the first thing they tell you to do, if you've been exposed, is to thoroughly wash the area, get the chemical off your skin, and that will make it less of a response. As long as that chemical's on your skin, you'll continue to get the response. And they, 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 they make stuff that's specifically for it. Uh, soap and hot water usually actually works fairly well anyway. But, you know, poison ivy is really common. Uh, again, depends on where you live. In Virginia, it's just absolutely everywhere. I see it in lots and lots of places. The, one of the problems is, is identifying it. Okay, you know, the leaves of three, well, that's one thing. But they don't all look the same. Some of them have small leaves, some of them have big leaves. Some of them grow as a, as a shrub. Some grow as a vine. It's all the same plant. It's just different growth forms. I've seen trees that have a vine this thick growing up the side of the tree. And the whole lower canopy of the tree is not actually the tree. It's all poison ivy. It's, a, it's incredible. It's, it's really interesting to see. So, you know, it's one of those things you just need to be aware of. But again, there's nothing about poison ivy that's, the, the chemical on them is not actually going to harm you. But you, it's your immune response to it that causes the problem. So these are all uh, issues where your immune system is creating the problem. We got what we got, and so we have to live with that. All right. Uh, then we have uh, another whole set of immune system disorders called autoimmunity. This is when your immune system attacks your own tissues. Doesn't attack itself. The immune system is functioning just fine, but some of your normal tissues have somehow become identified as antigens and the system starts to attack them. Uh, you produce antibodies against self. Remember we said one of the things, key things about adaptive immunity is the distinction between self and non-self. In autoimmune diseases, this breaks down and certain tissues may be affected. So rheumatoid arthritis uh, is when you are producing antibodies that attack the, the, uh, the cartilage that lines the joints. And you gradually lose that cartilage, you get inflammatory responses. And if uh, there are drugs that can slow it down, but all of those drugs are 
suppressing the immune response because that's the only way to stop it. Okay. Uh, I've seen uh, children who are, it has nothing to do with age here, uh, children in wheelchairs because they, they can't walk anymore. Their joints are so badly torn up with this that they can't even walk. Okay, so it is potentially a problem. It also has a genetic component. So if you have a, a parent that has it, you have a higher risk of getting it. Okay. Um, this is not the normal arthritis that you all are going to have someday. Okay, that's just wear and tear on the joints. That's joints don't last forever. You know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, CV joints in your car. They don't last forever, and every now and then you got to do some you know maintenance on them. Well, your joints aren't going to last forever either live long enough, you're going to start to have arthritis. That's just life. Okay. Uh, you got to remember that until probably 100, maybe 200 years ago, very few humans lived past the age of 45. Okay. The idea that, hey, we're going to be 90 years old, that was rare, extremely rare. Today, it's a lot more common. Well, things start to wear out. Okay. Um, Multiple sclerosis is another uh, MS. That's another uh, autoimmune disorder. And in this one, the immune system is attacking the myelin sheath, the, the coverings of motor nerves. And you gradually have reduced function of those motor nerves, which means you lose, you have reduced function of the muscles that they activate. Okay, this usually starts in the legs. It works its way up. It's, there have been a lot of advances in drugs to treat it. But uh, basically, they delay the, they, they simply slow down the course of, of the disorder. Uh, it, it often is fatal. Uh, lupus is also considered to fall into this because it's your own tissues, although it's the antigen antibody complexes that are really causing the problem. Uh, type 1 diabetes. This is uh, insulin dependent. Uh, usually, it's because your immune system has destroyed the cells that produce insulin in, in the pancreas. Again, we don't know why. They've attacked those cells. They've destroyed them. So you can't make any insulin. So then you have to replace the insulin. You don't have any real choice. Okay, this is usually something you uh, would have very young. Uh, it's not something you develop later in life. Okay, type 2 diabetes, which is adult onset, is a whole different kind of diabetes, which is also, unfortunately, quite common. Okay, so this is, these are autoimmune diseases. And then you can have a deficient immune response, okay? Primary immune deficiencies are things children are born with. Um, they simply may not have T cells, or they don't have B cells, or there's some portion of the immune system that's simply not there, but they have it from birth, okay? So it's considered a primary immune deficiency. Severe combined immune deficiency is the worst one. Uh, these children have no adaptive immune system at all. And they generally do not survive very long. I mean, you can keep them alive for a while, but it's a constant battle because they just can't respond to immune threats. Uh, now, secondary immune deficiencies are acquired later in life. And of course, the most common one that we talk about is age. AIDS is an acquired immune immunodeficiency. That's what it is. Uh, it's caused, in this case, by a virus. It gradually reduces the number of helper T cells to the point that they can, your immune system cannot respond. But that's not the only way. Um, 
radi exposure to radiation can kill bone marrow, which will leave you with uh, an immune deficiency. That's that's another way. Uh, so, uh, and exposure to certain uh, chemicals can do that. Uh, so it's not just AIDS. It's not the only way. But all we mean by a secondary is that you had a normally functioning immune system, and then something occurred that impaired that functioning. Okay, uh, and then you so then you acquired an immune deficiency. Okay, this was one of the, the early ones. The kid lived in the bubble, you know, bubble boy. Uh, there's been movies made about it. Uh, but your problem is you can't live like that your whole life. It's just not an option, really. Okay, this is the uh, this is HIV. This is what the virus looks like. It's, uh, remember we talked about viruses. So here's their genetic material inside here. Here's the protein capsid. And then this is the envelope outside. So what it does, of course, is it enters the whole cell, which happens to generally be a helper T cell or a macrophage. It, it has RNA for its genetic material. That RNA gets released. It has an enzyme that it carries with it called reverse transcriptase, which converts the RNA DNA, and then this DNA can actually incorporate into, the, into your DNA, one of your chromosomes in any case. And then it has a couple of options, like any other virus that does this. It can just stay dormant for some period of time, not do anything. But every time, you know, that's one thing. The other thing, of course, is it can become active, produce new RNA for the uh, new viruses, and those leave the cell. Grab some of the cell membrane and wrap it around in those egg, egg capsules. There's a, an image of one actually emerging from a cell. Um, the good news about HIV is uh, <clears throat> being an enveloped virus, it does not last long outside the body. It's like really minutes. And then becomes ineffective. Uh, so that's why you generally get it by uh, contact with body fluids. That's how it's generally transferred. Um, we don't know where it came from, although there is a, a uh, simian form, and it may be that it simply crossed species lines from, uh, from primates to humans. You know, how that happened is just not really known. But it's, and there are multiple strains of HIV. Some are much more virulent than others. Still working on it. Although today with the treatments that have people who are determined to be HIV uh, positive, which simply means they have antibodies to HIV, they may not, they may actually even have killed it all off. There's no way to know that because they, they have antibodies. But there are treatments now that can extend that period for 20, 30 years. It's a lot of treatment for it. It's really, really important over time. It's, it, there's no actual cure for it yet. And part of the reason is that the virus is extremely sloppy in, in producing its outer uh, protein coats, um, and so it keeps changing. 
And that means when your immune system learns to recognize one, and then the next wave that comes out has a different three-dimensional shape, and the immune system says, what's this? It's a brand new thing. And they have to go through the whole process of getting used to it. Um, and in the meantime, it's slowly depleting your helper T cell numbers. So how do you make a vaccine for something that keeps changing? That's the problem. This isn't the only uh, disease like that. There are some other diseases that have continually changed their, their coding on them. And you have to find something that's a constant to make a vaccine. Because you can't make them fast enough otherwise. Okay, so right now, the pharmaceutical companies are starting to make the flu vaccine for the next, next fall. You can't wait until next fall to start. You've got to start doing it right now to make an amount of it that they're going to have to make. So the, they make it based on the best estimates from the CDC as to which flu strains will make it into North America next winter. Okay, there are people who they monitor that. Uh, flu, new flu strains you seem to start in Asia. They slowly move across the world, um, <clears throat> usually reaching us the following year. And that gives them time to make the vaccine. Of course, if they guess wrong, then lots of people are going to get the flu. That happened a couple years ago. The primary flu virus that came around was not in the vaccine because it was just they had not they just picked the wrong one. They only put about three different strains in the vaccine, and uh, they missed they just got it wrong. So lots of people got the flu that year. Flu is really dangerous too particularly to older, to young, very young and very old. Uh, normal, healthy adults usually survive the flu with, you know, I mean, they're not happy about it, but they survive. Um, that's it. Uh, but it turns into pneumonia in elderly people, and that's usually the killer, is the pneumonia. It's not the, it's not the flu directly. Okay, this is uh, somebody with AIDS. This is something called Kaposi sarcoma. Uh, these are opportunistic infections. Pneumocystis is a lung disease disorder, herpes, toxoplasma is another lung, tuberculosis candida is a, a fungal infection, Epstein-Barr virus uh, causes, uh, it's the virus that causes mono in, in more healthy people, but it can be more serious in people who don't have immune systems, and they simply can't respond to these opportunistic infections. Uh, they have to be taken drugs to And that's kind of the immune system. Right? Um, actually, I had planned on, if we hadn't missed a couple days due to weather, my plan was we were also going to, we were going to do the nervous system, the immune system, and the uh, circulatory system. Uh, we just don't have time to do them all. Because if I do, we won't have any time to do ecosystems, and I think it's important for us to spend some time on that. Uh, so we're just going to do the immune system. Now, what I'm going to do is uh, make up a uh, take-home exam. I will have it available and posted by the weekend. You'll have one full week to work on it. You can use any sources you want that are non-living. Okay. Uh, you know, no living sources, please. Uh, not, but, uh, 
I mean, if you can uh, get a medium to contact your grandmother who was a uh, worked in the hospital, that's okay. That's a non-living source, I guess. But, um, but in other words, don't help each other. I mean, I, and I know, you know, there's no way to completely on a take-home exam. There's no way to know that somebody isn't cheating. Uh, it, sometimes it's obvious, but uh, I will say that on it, uh, do not quote directly from sources. Put it into your own words, and I can usually tell. Okay, when I see words in there that I know people just don't normally use, it's a pretty good indicator. Uh, and so there are going to be uh, probably about four, maybe five questions on the immune system. And then the other part is going to be for you, uh, we've kind of mentioned this the other day, for you to select one of the other chapters in the book on human organ systems. And I don't care which one, it's entirely up to you. The question's probably going to have three parts to it. Again, it's take home. I, I'm just kind of, this is something I've not tried before, but we're gonna do it this time. Uh, first thing would be for you to describe the different parts of that system. Secondly, what, are their, what do they do? What's the function of that system? And a little bit of detail. And then thirdly, how do all those parts interact to make that function occur? That gets us back to a core concept of systems, okay? Uh, so basically what I'm asking, we'll be asking you to, to, how does this organ, how does this particular organ system, how does it function as a system? And then the fourth part will be, what is it, what if any is its connection to the immune system? Okay. Uh, most of them do have some connection to the immune system, so uh, that, that shouldn't be a big, big problem. There might be one or two in there that don't, and you can just say that it doesn't and justify your answer. That's fine. No problem with that. Uh, so that's what, what, what you'll have. And like I said, you'll have uh, at least a full week to work on it. If I, I can get it posted by Friday night, uh, it might take that long because I have to go to Richmond on all, all day Thursday and most of Friday uh, for a meeting. Uh, try and get it posted uh, by Friday night. Uh, it would not be due until not the following Monday, but the Monday after that. So you'd have almost 10 days to work on it. Yes, either. Uh, you, it depends on how, if you write it, if you hand write it out, then obviously you'll bring it in the class. If you want to do it digitally and submit it digitally, that's fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, we're moving more and more in that direction these days. Uh, so anyhow, that's what we're going to do for the next exam. Okay. Now, and we're going to start, in fact, we'll do a little bit. Uh, now we don't have much time, so we probably won't do anything today. But, um, so on, on uh, Monday, we're going to start on ecosystems, uh, environmental things. We'll talk a little bit about population uh, uh, dynamics, how populations grow. Um, get into the interactions of the different parts. What are the different parts of an ecosystem? How do they interact with each other? What's going on there? Um, we'll talk a little bit, I hope right at the end, we'll talk about uh, some uh, uh, particular problems, uh, environmental problems, uh, and, and ways that humans are uh, definitely impacting ecosystems. Um, regardless of what you, uh, your views on environmental issues, uh, it is becoming very clear that we are having severe impacts on ecosystems. Uh, and that's just human. Humans are like that. The one thing humans do 
more than, uh, we're not the only organisms that, that manipulate ecosystems. There are other organisms that do that. <clears throat> elephants are, manipulate ecosystems. Okay, elephants uh, out in the savanna, which is mostly grasslands with a few trees. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons there's so few trees is that elephants keep knocking them over. They maintain that ecosystem. Okay, so they're, you know, they're having an impact. So we're not the only, we just happen to be really better at it than anybody else at it. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into those kinds of issues. Um, it's uh, usually a pretty uh, interesting section. And then on Monday, May 2nd, we'll have an exam on just, uh, on just ecosystems. Okay. And then our final comes up a couple days after that, I guess. And then we're done. You only have about four more weeks, you're, all, you're out of here. Unless, of course, you're taking summer school classes. Oh, it never ends. Okay, so we'll, obviously we'll stop there for today. And uh, we'll pick up with ecosystems on Monday. I got a really